Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. As we saw, and as you can verify when you look up into the sky tonight, there's objects out there and there's space. That's basically what the world consists of. And the two dimensions are within you. And humans have become lost in one. So we are here to realize that dimension. It cannot be realized in the future. It cannot be made into an object of a search because it's here now. The moment you're looking for it, you create a future. Now, what is future? It's a thought form. Apart from that, there is no future except as a thought form. cannot come except as now. So it's now the arising of space consciousness or the realization of space consciousness is here now. For example, it happens when you acknowledge not only the words that you hear. Acknowledge simply means pay attention. Notice. Just as noticing here, there are two dimensions just the same as when you look up into the sky at night, you will find there are two dimensions. There are the words here. And there's a silent space or stillness. in which the words happen.
Welcome, everyone, to America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. It delights me when you actually take the time to hold the dial right there instead of scanning it through, swiping it up, swiping it down, crisscrossing it. So many different now um, behavioral processes that we have that have changed a lot in the last 10 years. And hopefully you were able to dive into Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now reflection on the Monique Rhodes Heartbeat album. And that's one of the practices I think we really need to amplify in our lives now because we, if we're not very present, we're going to take our lives for granted, our relationships for granted, and our planet for granted because we're just not thinking about the consequences of our thoughts, words, and deeds. And a lot of the choices that we make, we are living with the result of them based on the way we feel about ourselves the way we interpret situations and events that transpire in our lives. And we blame people for what goes on, not thinking that, I wonder if I had a role to play in what's happening to me. And you have to think about if you do decide to pay such loving attention on what are these thoughts doing for me? Where are these thoughts going? What's the consequence of this thought that I'm having here for myself or for the other person. If I were to begin to have loving attention on just that thought factor, I think we would save our lives and we definitely save our planet. And I think for those of us who actually do sit back at times and have a moment of solitude and look at the way the world is unfolding, something within the soul says, wake up, you've got to do something. You can't just sit back and watch it pass by and Maybe create the mantra, what you're going to do. But you begin to create the mantra, this is what I'm going to do. And our guest, Adam Minter, is going to tell us a little bit about all the incredible things that he's doing to help our planet become a lot more sustainable. Adam Minter is a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, where he writes about China, technology, and the environment. He's the author of Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade, a critically acclaimed best-selling insider's account of the hidden world of globalized recycling, and his book, Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. Adam has covered the global recycling industry for almost two decades, and in 2002, he began a series of groundbreaking investigative pieces on China's emerging recycling industries for scrap and Recycling International. Since then, he has been cited, quoted, interviewed on recycling and waste by a range of international media, including the New York Times, Vice, NPR, BBC. He regularly speaks to groups about the global waste and recycling trade, including colleges, universities, trade groups, TEDx, and so on. Today gives me great pleasure to welcome Adam Minter to the air. Adam, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. I'm so excited to be with you right now for the next few minutes. You have no idea. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. It's really an honor. Please tell me, what got you started in this whole area, or was it just by default? You just happened to have been at the right place at the right time with the right person. What happened? Well, it, it's really, it, it goes back uh, three generations. My family, when they came to the United States, really didn't have anything. Um, no education, mm. 
no English language skills, nothing. So they became uh, scavengers, if you will, peddlers, uh, really picking scraps off the streets of Galveston, Texas, and selling them. And, and in those days, you didn't call it recycling. In fact, the term recycling hadn't even been invented yet. But that modest start uh, became the small uh, junkyard, if you will, where I grew up. And some of my earliest memories are really wandering around uh, this junkyard. And, and I found out, you know, as I grew up that I really wasn't cut out for the business world. And I found my calling was really <laughs> writing. But it's funny, you know, if you grow up in sort of a, a scavenging family, a, a junk or recycling family, it never really leaves you. And, and so I naturally mm. gravitated to writing about it because I really wanted to bring this world, which is sometimes maligned, I wanted people to understand it and to understand what we do. And so junk pickers, scavengers around the world, they, they make an incredible contribution to our environment and to us as human beings. And I've really, my career has really been trying to bring that to life. Well, thank you for doing that because I know that us as millennials, which is mostly the ones who listen to our show, and thank you all for, for doing that, they are becoming more conscious. It's as if they're waking up to a culture of how do I create a sustainable future? And I think it's important that we get enough information that can help us to at least navigate, even if I do one thing, Adam, to help sustain yeah. the future, my karmas feel good. Oh, I totally agree. And for me, you know, my career and really my life from, you know, my earliest memories being a toddler in the junkyard or going with my grandmother to garage sales, you know, in the suburbs mm-hmm. of Minneapolis, uh, right up to this present day is, has really been a journey about, you know, understanding consumerism and and how it defines us and, and trying to move away from that and to, and to create, you know, both for myself but also for my readers, you know, a sense that there is a different path. Um, it may not always be easy to separate us from that cultural norm, but, but it is mm-hmm. This might be fascinating to you, and maybe you might totally understand what I'm about to say. I've traveled to over 95 countries so far, and every time in particular I'm in India, the garbage cans are those really tiny ones, you know, the small ones that you would put like in a bathroom, maybe even a little bit smaller. And whenever I Mm -hmm. come back to the U.S., I look at my house and I see these big garbage cans and I go, how do I survive being in India and I... Somehow I can throw away whatever I need to, and there's still room in the small garbage cans in India. And I come back here, and we're emptying a garbage bag almost every other day. Have you noticed that in your travels? I absolutely have. And, you know, it's almost axiomatic in my, my field. The wealthier a country becomes, the more it throws away. And it becomes, uh, you know, almost a, a twisted status symbol. I, I, I know from my travels in the United States, you, you know, on recycling day, people are almost proud to put a bunch of boxes out front of their house to suggest that they're sustainable people, they're environmentalists, we recycle. But, of course, the recycling doesn't, is, there's no such thing as a green fairy that's automatically going to turn those cardboard boxes into new forests. Recycling is the third best thing. You, it's better than throwing things in the trash, but it's, it's not restoring our planet. And so I right. always tell people, you know, it's great you, you recycle, but, but take your lead from these emerging markets, these developing countries, places like India that don't have as much, and learn from them. And that's, 
very contrary to a lot of the way of thinking, especially in the environmental movements in the United States and Europe, where we tend to want the emerging markets, these developing countries, to learn from us. But we should learn from those small garbage cans because they're sending us a very important message about what we are capable of doing. You know, Indeed. know we're capable of we're capable of throwing away a lot of stuff, but let's be capable of doing what India does. Yeah, and I think they're also becoming plastic-free by 2025, and they're planning right. to have just all electric cars also by then. I just am so inspired by Prime Minister Modi's initiatives of late and even his International Day of Yoga. Let's get back to between 1967 and 2017, for example. Mm-hmm. The amount right. that Americans spend annually, Adam, on things from clothing to sofas to cell phones increased almost 20 folds. Is this mostly due to inflation or we're just consuming more? What's happening at a soul level? Are we getting less fulfilled that we need to have more possessions? Yes, I I think that's exactly it. And, you know, of course we have bigger houses and we can fit more into it. And Americans in particular have bigger houses than anybody. And then they have storage units when they run out of room in their houses. What we're starting to see, and there's both empirical evidence, but I'd say, you know, I also feel it, is the way people define themselves in modern society is no longer necessarily define themselves by their family or by their religious institutions or civic institutions. Increasingly, we define ourselves by the stuff we own and by the brands, you know, that we put on our bodies or have on the back of our phones or on our cars. And, and there's very good consumer surveys on this, um, but, but people instinctively know it. I think we all know the brands and restaurants that say only Democrats might flock to. And we know the restaurants and brands that maybe Republicans would go to. But, but that's a very disturbing phenomenon because we shouldn't be defining ourselves by material things. Historically, you know, in human history, that's not how we did it. We had other ways of doing it, more spiritual ways, ways connected to our family and to our spirituality, and and that's breaking down. And I think as those bonds break down in society, people start to grasp, look for anything, and they start grabbing onto those material things, those brands which define us. Mm, I like that. That's well said. In the waste industry is estimated to be, I didn't know this, Adam, $5 $5 billion industry. So when we drop off old clothes and other items at a local donation center or throwaway trash, where's all that going and who's actually profiting from my waste? Sure. <laughs> that sounds weird. Well, but who is? Yeah. Yeah, well, oftentimes there is somebody. So if we're, if we're talking about, say, you drop things off at a Goodwill, you know, only about one-third of the things that are donated to Goodwill or any North American thrift store actually sell off their shelves. And there's a reason for that, and that is that, you know, in North America, we're very wealthy, and we throw away uh, so much more than anybody else on the planet. And there just isn't enough people in the United States and Canada to consume all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So if you don't want it being cut up into rags or used as stuffing in a sofa, it's going to have to go where people want that lower price point, frankly, from a market standpoint. And so it goes overseas, you know, to emerging markets where people want to have access to consumer goods, but they can't necessarily afford the new ones or don't like what's in their market. And so they opt for stuff from, you know, mostly from developed countries. So it's a global trade. And 
and I'm I'm a big fan of it because uh, you know if this stuff wasn't being consumed elsewhere, it would be wasted. And and that global market, whether it be in Pakistan or Southeast Asia or wherever it is, make sure our stuff lasts a little bit longer. Can you mention some of the things that are being recycled from waste that we know about now, or you found to be very useful? Well, I mean, uh, you know, just, you know, and in, in, in terms of my current book, I mean, I, I spend quite a bit of time with the clothing trade. And, you know, your clothing mm-hmm. has a market. If it's decent clothing, there's a market overseas. People want your good stuff, especially, um, you know, if it's, uh, if, it's, if it's durable. People overseas don't want, you know, cheap stuff that falls apart after one to five washes. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting, and I think it's often misunderstood, is that there's a tremendous market for your used electronics and devices. And even if you have something broken, um, you know, there's somebody overseas who's probably capable of fixing that and keeping it going longer. I spent time in Ghana, which was a wonderful experience, and I saw people working on 30- and 35-year-old electronics, and those are skills we don't have generally in in developed countries anymore. And again, it's another example of how instead of asking people in emerging markets to learn from us, we really need to be learning from them. And and that was just incredibly encouraging to me. It, it, It made my heart feel better because we have sort of this belief that our old electronics, you know, have no second life, but, but in fact they do. And it's much more rich and interesting than anybody would ever expect. Good to hear. It's very, very, very hopeful, very hopeful. China announced that it would no longer buy most plastic waste from places like the United States. What impact has this had, and where are we now sending our plastic waste? I mean, where are we sending waste? Sure. Yeah. Right. Well, that's that's a really important question. Yeah, mm. China has, has blocked most of the American plastics that used to flow into it. Uh, they would use that material not, you know, to burn it or throw it in a landfill. They would use it to make new products but they've decided that they want to opt for a a different tack. And so there really is nowhere as big as China to consume that anymore. Roughly one-third of the waste from the United – recyclable waste from the United States goes overseas every year. Two-thirds stays in the United States. And when your biggest customer from a market standpoint shuts down, it's really impossible to replace that. Some of it's going to Southeast Asia and Chinese factories that have relocated there. But the fact of the matter is a lot of it is now going into landfills and incinerators in the United States because there's just nowhere else for it to go. So in a sense, our plastic addiction has come home to roost. And, you know, it's not a positive thing. But I will say, because I'm an optimist, I think there is a positive side to this, and it's making people all over the United States and really all over the world reassess their consumption. And I think that's such an important direction for the world to be going into from a spiritual standpoint and from a material standpoint. And so even though, you know, there isn't somewhere for this to go, I'm hoping that it actually leads to a decline in consumption of these products, and we, we actually it leads to a more sustainable economy. Mm, That sounds good. I think it's important. So in your book, you say that by 2030, senior citizens will account for a whopping 20% of the U.S. population. And so disposing of their stuff will be an even bigger burden for families. You say that the business of downsizing others is about managing emotions in addition to maybe managing stuff. Again, isn't that like a soul thing? That's really a soul thing, right? It's it's really about where we are with our emotions and our sense of self-worth. It absolutely is, and it was, for Mm. me, the most surprising part of doing this current book 
when I got into it, I thought I would be doing a book sort of about thrift stores. And I didn't realize it was about to become an unexpected spiritual journey for myself. You know, the origins mm-hmm. of this book were really the passing away of my mother and my sister and I being confronted with sort of two periods of mourning. First, of course, for our mother, but then we have to find out what to do with the things she left behind. And as any, if anybody has gone through this, and most people do, it's a very difficult process because you look at these things and you say, this was important to my mother, but what can I do with it? What does it mean to And it's a very difficult process that wasn't just about my mother, but I went around the world. I spent time in Japan where there are businesses that help families go through this process. And in the United States, I watched families go through this process, and I saw them struggling spiritually and emotionally. And I would often find sometimes find myself in tears watching them say, we have no use for this thing that belonged to my mother, to my grandmother, to my father, and it meant so much to us. And that really made me personally reassess how I consume. And I think, and I'm, again, I remain very optimistic, I think it helps families start to say to themselves, maybe I don't need to hook so much of my, my life and my identity to these material things, and I too will stop consuming. And I think that's a spiritual journey that a lot of Americans in particular are about to go on because the baby boomer generation is in decline. They're downsizing their homes. They're needing to get rid of their things, and eventually they're going to pass away, and they'll need to get rid of more things. And so families are going to start reassessing their parents' and their grandparents' consumption and ultimately their own. And I hope it leads to less consumption and a reassessment of how we evaluate ourselves. Mm, Lovely, lovely. Why can't everybody think like you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, I hope I... I I think increasingly you'll see people doing it. You know, one of the most interesting and and heartening things that I, I found doing this most recent book, Secondhand, is that the professionals who do this kind of work, who help families clean out and serve as counselors to them, they all say the same thing, which is, you know, after being around this process, I've stopped buying things, you know, and, and one uh, clean out professional I spent time with, Jill Freeman is her name. She said, you know, when I go to a wedding, I lo- no longer buy things off the registry. I no longer buy the china or the silverware. I buy them experiences. Let them go out and be a couple and talk and get to know each other or, or whatever it is. You know, so you get them that gift certificate for a restaurant. And so I, I, I do sense this cultural shift and, 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 and that's why I remain very optimistic, even though it's very easy to be pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so much of the news around is so filled with that sort of a pessimism that there's almost yes. an industry. And, you know, you've also said that racial prejudice, wealthy world bias, well-intentioned treaties prevent many unwanted used goods from being exported to developing world. I mean, again, what is that all, just politics? Well, it's, some of it is politics, and some of it is, is again, as I, as I wrote, it's well-meaning. Some of it is just straight prejudice. There's a phenomenon I call waste colonialism, and, and it really what it is is just the idea that rich countries can define what waste is for developing countries. And you may say, well, why should that matter? Well, say I have a cell phone with a cracked screen. If you're in the, uh, the U.K., and that phone doesn't work, they'll say it's waste and it should be recycled. But there are plenty of people in Africa who can import that phone and fix it and keep it going for years and years and years. 
And so, you know, and that's primarily a market of non-white people. And yet uh, the U.K. and Europe in general have laws that say that you cannot export that broken phone to an emerging market, which are primarily non-white people. So it's essentially white people defining what can and cannot be repaired by people in emerging markets who are non-white. And that amplifies and sometimes undergirds a kind of racial prejudice that's been around for decades, centuries. And I think it's very unhelpful to us spiritually because it means we aren't respecting the skills of these people in emerging markets. But it's also very bad environmentally because if we know one thing about stuff and electronics is the longer it lasts, the lower the impact it has on the environment. And so I think it's a very important issue that hasn't been addressed very much. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? The longer it lasts, the less impact it has on the environment? means sure, that it's sure. like plastic. If it's staying around for so long, then you could see of the damage that it's causing? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. No, what I mean is a, a working product, for example. If you okay. have a cell phone, you know, like a, a, a smartphone, uh, you know, a smartphone that is used for 10 years is going to have a smaller impact than one that's used three years. First, because... Um, by not being replaced, it means you're not going to be mining metals and, and you know, using petrochemical facilities for the plastics to make new ones because it will reduce demand for new ones. And that's ultimately our goal is less new stuff out there. So if it lasts longer, there's less demand for new stuff. So that's primarily how, yeah. All right. So secondhand consumer economy needs durability, repairability, and Definitely much less racial bias. In what ways would this benefit in a second-hand consumer economy and the environment? Well, I'm a big fan of thrift stores, you know, just because I think they're fun to go to, first of all. But I, but I also uh, like thrift stores because, again, they extend that life of products. And if our goal is to see people buying less stuff, then we need stuff that lasts longer because, you know, we're never going to get rid of consumption and we're never going to get rid of new stuff. But one thing we have seen over the last 30 years in particular is the quality of the things we buy becoming uh, weaker, less quality. And, and I mm-hmm, think people who mm-hmm. buy clothes and apparel in particular know it. The rise of fast fashion, for example. These are garments that last maybe one to five washes, and then they can't be they you know, nobody wants them. They look terrible. They're they're fraying, and that's bad for the environment. I'd also say it's bad for us spiritually to keep using and reusing and just wasting like this. And so, if they can't go into a if you can't donate that to a goodwill and see it resold, it's 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 really disposable clothing, no different than a disposable plastic bag. So in the book, I I make some proposals on how we can encourage companies to make more durable products that can flow into the secondhand economy and be sold and resold. And I also suggest to people that when they buy things, you know, to think that way, you know, to say, can I, if I buy this, is it something that will last beyond me? Maybe not past my lifetime, but, but, you know, maybe when I'm I'm done with it, I can give it to a goodwill and somebody will see it there and say, oh, that's terrific. I want to buy that and I want to use it. And so I think that's very, very, very important. And there is a beautiful spiritual component to that as well. I mean, I'm always, you know, when I go to thrift stores, I'm always excited. To, it, it, it fires my imagination to think, who had this and how did they love it and how did they use it? And there is that sort of passing along. And I spent time in Japan, and in Japan, you know, there is, uh, with some objects, the belief that if something is used longer, it, it, for a long time, it, it develops its own spirit to it. And I think that's a beautiful thought. And if we could encourage that, you know, that thinking that something takes on a life, it has a legacy, um, I believe we'll have a more sustainable world. Mm, yeah, I agree with you. That's great. 
In researching your book, you spent a lot of time with the people who clean out other people's stuff, both in the United States. Were there any common stories that kind of really stuck there with you that you were realizing we have so much more in common than we have in different? Yeah, well, that was very jarring for me. I mean, to go from the United mm-hmm. States to Japan and spend time with these clean-out professionals and to see the same tears from family members as they go through these things and, and, ha- and, and have to let go. It's very painful and it's very emotional for me and it brought me back to my mother and my grandparents and, again, made me reflect upon how everybody in every consumer society is different as they are in their own way. Japan and the United States have this common thread, this, this deep connection to our stuff that isn't necessarily and certainly isn't healthy and that it's something that I think we all all need to step beyond. The other thing that, you know, kept coming up is, you know, with these people who, these, these brilliant, wise workers who help people clean out their homes consistently saying to me it's overwhelming, you know, and, and, and there is just no end to it. And, and that was very shocking to me in both societies, yeah. Yeah, I bet, I bet. Well, you're doing great work, and we really appreciate what you've been doing. So let's just say that, you know, we really need to make some big changes, and I know it starts at a conscious level. I know that in order for us to sustain it, we've got to come from a place inside of ourselves that we're comfortable with what we are emerging for change. What really needs to change, uh, do you think, what really needs to change to build a sustainable future free of so much excess stuff? Could you outline a few things? Sure. Well, I think the first thing is I think every every person, every consumer needs to at some point step back and ask themselves, why are they so attached to a brand? Why are they so attached to this thing? When I buy something, is it am I buying it because I'm trying to build an identity, you know, that others see? Because it's a really unhealthy approach, not just to consumption and your own pocketbook, but to life in general. And, and those are very hard questions to ask. But, but I think a good point to ask them is when you have aging parents, aging grandparents, and, and you start thinking about what you're going to do with their things. So from a spiritual level, I think it's worth asking yourself, how much of my parents' life is defined by their stuff? How much of my grandparents' stuff is defined by their stuff? And is there a lesson I can learn from that? Is, there, is that the way that I want to live? So from a spiritual perspective, I think that's a very important set of questions. From a consumer and material perspective, I really encourage people to do two things. One is just to buy better things and, and buy better things that you can develop a relationship with and that others can develop a relationship with. Don't think of a, a purchase as just for you. Think of it as a purchase for the next person and the person after that. And if you do that, you'll not only buy better stuff, but I think you'll start you'll stop fixing your identity so securely to brands and objects. That's very important. And the other thing mm-hmm. I think is really important, and I'm exploring more and more in my own life, and, and I know a number of my friends are, is the idea of fixing and mending and repair. You know, we've gotten away from the idea that we should maintain our stuff, whether it is, you know, you know putting a button on a shirt or opening up the back of your smartphone and putting in a battery. But I, I think those things are very important. Not only can they be, again, it's good for your pocketbook, but I also think they also 
create a deeper connection between you and your things, and we tend to take care of them better, and we are going to want better things. And it, it's possible for us to have that kind of relationship with things that's not destructive, but just to say, these are the things that are important to me, and I will take care of them. I will maintain them, not only for myself, but again, for that next owner and for the planet. And so I, I encourage people to do that. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing, and I know it's making our future a whole lot brighter. Where can our listeners find more information about you and your work? And are you traveling on tour for your book? Is there any book signings coming up? Sure. Well, we've just finished most of the U.S. tour uh, for secondhand travels in the new global garage sale, but you can find that anywhere you uh, you buy uh, books. And if you Google my name, Adam Inter, you'll find uh, my columns for Bloomberg, and you'll find uh, some interviews that I've done about waste and consumption. Um, and you can always go to my website, which will give you more information on biography and, and the things that I'm doing, and that's just adamminter.com. Oh, that sounds perfect. Adam Minter, thank you so much, and all the very best. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Wasn't that informative, everyone? Now we can make a concerted decision to help the planet, help our lives, work from an inner place first, and downsize. And it's something that I've been doing, too. I've been at least trying. I mean, I'm in a culture and industry where you're always giving or getting gifts, but really just this feeling of just having less is best. Um, it's just it's just pulling more and more. So remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same. So might be a good time to do that. <laughs> here is Elijah Ray. Love being here. Take care.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.